0: Welcome to the Readings Podcast. I'm Tom Hoskins and I manage the Readings Store at the State Library of Victoria. Today's recording is from an event Readings held at the Melbourne Town Hall in February 2019. It's a recording of Yotamoto Motolegi in conversation with Maeve O'Meara.
1: Welcome. Welcome everybody. Welcome to the Melbourne Town Hall on this very first day of the month of February I'm delighted to welcome you here on behalf of Readings and on behalf of the Penguin Random Publishing House. Before I begin today, I'd like to respectfully acknowledge on behalf of each and every one of you here tonight that we are standing on the Kulin Nation and we would pay our respects to the Elders past and present who are the traditional owners of this land on which all of the reading shops are located and on where we gather today. We are honoured to recognise our connection to this nation and we strive to ensure that we operate in a manner that respects and honours the elders and the ancestors of this land. My name is Chris Gordon and I'm the programming manager at Readings. This, my friends, is the luckiest job in Australia at the very best bookshop in the world. Events like these take many, many people to make it possible. To that end, please join me in thanking the brilliant staff of Readings. Please also join me in thanking the staff at Penguin Random who have brought out the main star here tonight, and in particular to Jessica for making all of this incredibly easy. Thank you. My role tonight is simply to tell you how the night will proceed. So first, to housekeeping. Friends, there will not be an opportunity for questions tonight. However, there will be a very small amount of time to say hello to both of our speakers after the event in the foyer of the town hall. But please note that Yotam will only sign two books per person He will not sign it to your great-auntie, to your next-door neighbour, nor to yourself. Uh, And sadly, he will not pose for photos. But throughout this event, please, you are very, put your phones on silence and you can take pictures now. You can tweet, but just don't let us hear you. Now, events like these are always extraordinarily powerful because we get a chance to look around at ourselves and see what a bunch of like-minded souls look like. It's comforting, I think, and reassuring, I believe, to consider that you are not the only one with tahini and harissa and preserved lemon in your fridge. Tonight, I am thrilled to introduce you to one of our most loved Australian women, Maeve, who will be leading our conversation. Maeve, another woman with one of the luckiest jobs in Australia, is an award-winning food and cooking author, a journalist, a broadcaster, a television producer and presenter who has spent over 20 years travelling the world discovering food. She's the co-author of 12 books on food and co-created, produced, and presented all five series of the acclaimed Food Lover's Guide to Australia. Maeve is also a food presenter on Better Homes and Gardens for five years, and she has won major international awards for her television work. Her Gourmet saf- Safaris Food Adventure Company has just celebrated 20 years of exploring food in the most beautiful parts of Australia and many ottolingi themed destinations. Think, my friends, of dining in the Greek islands or in Turkey. With Maeve, she leads all of the trips. And tonight, my friends, we are so fortunate, so lucky and privileged to have her here in Melbourne with us. Let's make her very welcome.
2: Well,
0: good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out to have what I think will be one of the great conversations about our favourite subject. Yeah, the name Otolenghi describes a new global cuisine, an inspired feast of many dishes using herbs, spices, exotic ingredients and mounds of vegetables. Yota Motolenghi has been a culinary game changer around the world. He's the author of seven books, the chef and owner of six eateries in London. He's the host of two Mediterranean Feast TV series, Father of Two, a rock star of the culinary world. Please welcome Yota Motolenghi. Mm. May I say what a treat it is for us to have you. What a treat for me. Look at this. It's great.
2: Yeah, it's really great.
0: Tell me about the Australian phenomenon. Because (laughs) you've you've just said backstage, like this is this is great. Yeah, this doesn't
2: happen anywhere else in the world, I have to say. (laughs) I haven't been accosted or uh, stopped on the way or get this is the rock star treatment that I only get in Australia and I'm not sure why. Someone said today, and that's a theory, I don't know if it's true or not, that the reason why I'm so popular in Australia is because our, my salads are really good for barbecue.
0: <laughs> it's one reason. It's one reason.
2: That was, I've always tried to crack that nut and I think maybe that is the thing.
0: Look, I think uh, a lot of your food absolutely sings with flavour. We have the best ingredients in the world. You know you've landed in culinary heaven in Melbourne. Yeah. It's the, you know, it's the gourmet capital of Australia. Let's, let's call a spade yeah. a spade. So, yeah. So, you're, you're talking to your people and uh, we're delighted to have you here. Thank you. Tell me, when you come to Melbourne, and I know you've been here before, are there things that you look forward to, tastes that you've had, or is it just... Busy, busy,
2: busy. Well, I had some really good food here. I am really busy. I haven't eaten any restaurant. Well, today I had um, uh, one lunch at Maha, uh, but it was, I was eating my food executed by other people. Oh, is that good? <laughs> well, it was really good. It was better than I would have made it. But, um, <laughs> but uh, I always look forward because I think this place has some of the best Vietnamese, Lebanese, Turkish, all. Old- Food. And I, and I always get really, I th- what I find really interesting is that it's always really difficult to straddle this line between uh, traditional authentic food and, and modernizing it. Mm. Often you get this thing that you see in many parts of the world where something really delicious from the street has been put in a, you know, in a ring that you use in a restaurant and lift it, and then you serve it to people, and then you charge them like a hundred bucks. But actually, it's, just, it's really not any better than what you get on the street. So to modernize um, traditional foods is really difficult. But here, I, a few years ago, actually it was two years ago, I came here and I had at, ate at Tulum. Do you know Tulum, a Turkish restaurant? And I ate this kind of modern version of Turkish food. It was just so wonderful and delicious and refreshing. And that's, for me, that's, that's what Melbourne is all about, taking things that come from the different communities but presenting them in slightly new light, not too much, not too little, just right.
0: A lot of chefs that are here say that they feel freer to move those boundaries a little bit in Australia because they're not talking to an audience that says, oh, you can't do that. Yeah. We've never done that. So Australia is this fantastic place for food, it's also a museum of food, so there are Italian people that still have tomato day and maybe they don't do it so much back <laughs> home so, so we, we're both new and old in the best possible way. Yeah,
2: it really feels like that to me, I mean, I only come in and I do a few days in the I leave. Not Unfortunately, long never long enough. But, uh, but it just does feel that it's got that kind of life and its own kind of dynamic and energy, which is, for me is very special.
0: Yeah, great. And, and a food-loving audience that love you, love your books. And we've all cooked your recipes, haven't we? They work. Every single recipe works. I and, spend and a lot
2: of my time getting the recipes to a certain standard, and people it's a lot of like quite boring work, so I, I, a recipe isn't finished in my books before I tested it like five or six or seven times, and it's a lot of testing, and I'm never quite happy, and it's like you know, people who have written books know that it's very difficult to put it to one side and kind of say, okay, that's done, and I feel this about every recipe I publish. I mean, can, you not, can I not tweak it just a little bit more? Can I not improve wow. it just a little bit more? And um, I don't know if people, some people. I've been talking about this uh, incredible woman that lives in Wales. Her name is Claudine. Oh, your recipe yeah, tester. Yeah, she's a recipe tester. She, yeah, she's the last person who sees my recipes. She tests. She test, tests every recipe I've ever published. And. Her guinea pigs are her three children and her husband, her, her parents-in-law. And I get really funny reports back from her. She sends an email saying, oh, you know, Rodri, my husband, he didn't really like that. That was too spicy for him. <laughs> but my father-in-law, on the, one, on the other hand, really thought that was... And so I get, a, I get this kind of idea of what people... Think, and really want. Really yes. want. And then also she comes up with really funny things. She says, like 170 grams of ricotta. And she says, but a pack is 200 grams. What am I going to do with the 30 grams? So that is God the kind bless of... Re- <laughs> Claudine, we say. Yes. So that is the kind of information that is both valuable and really informative. So yeah. I, know what, I know what to do next time.
0: How long would each recipe take? So Simple has 140 recipes. How long would each of those recipes have taken with all those steps that you go through?
2: Um, Every recipe is simple. Sometimes it's different. Sometimes you get a recipe that you need to test. You can kind of let go after three or four tests and other is a real challenge, you know, you'd never... I was working, I saw a picture because one of my colleagues was sending me today, I posted it on Instagram, I know you're all on Instagram, um, <laughs> of uh, we were trying to do this ragu, which was a vegetarian ragu using lentils and barley, mm. and I think we re- this was like test number 12 or 13 or 14, and we finally cracked it, and I have to say that the feeling of we've nailed it is amazing because the standards are high, We've done it so many times and, some, and, and that ragu is really, really good. And I think not forgetting that you want every recipe to be the absolute best possible yeah. is something that I, I think I always try to keep in the back of my mind.
0: So there are cutting room floor for recipes. Yes. There are recipes that don't make it. And, and do you feel yeah. a sense of loss? Like it sounds like there's so much of you bound up in those recipes. <laughs> and I love reading in simple. Um, some of your great taste discoveries, like the great moment where you thought you'd put roasted cauliflower with grated raw cauliflower. I felt that whoosh for you, you know, (laughs) or the idea of putting coriander seeds with uh, roasted celeriac. So there's a lot of you invested in in those food, in that flavour.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's quite difficult to let something go after you invested quite a lot of time in it. I know people have that in all walks of life. You know, you spend some time... On a business plan or something, and you've been spending a lot of time, and then at sometimes at some point you need you realize that you carry on doing it just for the sake of keeping something going, uh, because it's hard oh. to admit that failure. So we have that sometimes, and I'm very soft, like I'm I'm, I, I'm not a very you know <laughs> tough direct person. Sometimes, so like, let's give it another go. Maybe we'll find a solution, but often it does end up on the, on the edit floor, room floor and then we just move on to the next thing. But sometimes things also transform and that's really nice. Like Sometimes something starts as a, as a roulade and then the pastry is just too soft to hold things together. So you just uh-uh. turn it into a stack, which is still delicious, but Fantastic. it's a kind of a compromise that you have to do if you're going to make those flavours or ingredients work together.
0: So over those seven books, you've amassed your food family, haven't you? You've got Claudine, you've got someone with a wonderful name, Ixter. Belfrager. <laughs> wow. Um, but you have your team, and how do things work? Talk me through how you would formulate a recipe.
2: Um, so, uh, to be honest, every recipe has a slightly different story. so some recipes come from if I, you know, I travel or I read a book or, or, or a magazine and I see something that it sparks an idea that could become a recipe. Sometimes one of the colleagues says, "Oh, I had that last night in Chinatown. It was a really interesting technique let 's try to that technique. I mean." Every recipe starts from, has a different story, mm. but they all end up being tested in the test kitchen, so there's, clo- at the moment I've got two people testing, or three testing full-time recipes, Noor and Ista, and they both have very different story. Ista has got uh, Brazilian, American, and Italian blood. It's amazing, what a great combination. And Noor is from Bahrain, She's so half Bahraini and half English. So that piece of, biography really helps to create something really special because I realized a long time ago that I'm going to run out of ideas unless I get more people into this cer- creative circle. Really? We
0: can't ever imagine you running out of ideas. Well,
2: you know, it's, it's true because, because it's very difficult to keep on creating and generating ideas. Sure. And I'm the beneficiary of lots of ideas that come from many people. I mean, I often like to give credit to others, but people don't want to hear about it. They want one star, so they look at me and they say, <laughs> okay, I'll, I can do that. But, um, but in actual fact, all these people, like, you know, last year I published a, re- a recipe book with Helen Goh. She's from this city. Melbourne. And she's from Melbourne. And Helen and I have been working together for more than 10 years. And, you know, she is just a creative fountain. You know, she's got so much. And she's worked in this city in so many great places, mm. learned so much. So I just stand to the side and let her kind of do her thing and it's it's amazing. So I just think that I'm very lucky to have these people.
0: I love that Claudine said that your recipes are getting better and better though, which I found really interesting. From someone who calls a spade a spade, (laughs) she's saying they're getting better. We've loved every single book but uh, do you feel that you are actually really in full stride? You're you're at your absolute best? I think
2: the the process is much better now because it's I've kind of understood what it takes to make a recipe successful and popular but I also really learn from reactions that I get from people. Like every time I have an event like this one, people come and I sign books and they tell me me what their favorite recipes are and that's very useful. I know that the, you know, the garlic tart from Plenty was a very popular dish. I know that the cauliflower cake from Plenty More was a very popular mm. dish. I know, or the black pepper tofu, Helen's recipe, by the way. And it's all like really great pieces of information that I kind of internalize. Okay, I'll do another one of those or something like that. It's, it's very useful to meet people who actually cook the food. And it's also very humbling because... Um, I said today in an earlier event, I said, what, someone asked me, what's the best thing about your job? And I said, the best thing about my job is when people come to me and say, that dish that you created in this book or somewhere, we cook it every week in our house. And for me, that is just gold. You that, know, that resonates that's, with you. It just means that I actually have a certain impact. You know, you can have a restaurant and feed the public and then they'll come and then they stop coming or, you know, whatever happens. But if something comes part of someone's repertoire at home and they, they raise their kids on this dish and then maybe they go on to cook it, I mean, can you imagine how fulfilling that, that's the best feeling?
0: Yes, you're woven into many all our lives. Yeah,
2: that for me is why I wake up in the morning and do what I do.
0: How fabulous. It does sound very, very pleasant. Is there a normal day for you?
2: Um, This is pretty normal. So I'd normally come to the test kitchen around 9 o'clock and Mm. people are already milling and cooking. And normally around 11 in the morning there is the first tasting, and everything tastes delicious at 11 o'clock in the morning, I have to tell you. (laughs) Have
0: you eaten by this time? No. No, No,
2: I skip breakfast because I know that all this is coming very early on in the day, so I have to make sure I've got some space. So I, I skip breakfast always, and I know that... But it's a problem, because when you judge recipes, everything tastes really good at 11, and everything tastes really kind of mediocre at 4, <laughs> because it, you, you, when you're full, you know the feeling. When you're full, it's just not you as good. So we thing. have to kind of compensate. Around 4 o'clock, things need to get, like, bumped up artificially in order to make How sure How many
0: recipes are you testing a day? Eight or 10. Or
2: that's a yeah, lot. That's a lot. That's a yeah. lot of tasting. Yeah, but also I go to the restaurants and I try them. So I taste a lot of food every day, just mm. a little bit.
0: It must only be a tiny bit. <laughs> a
2: teaspoon. No, spoon. I'm really skinny now because when I'm on book tour, I don't eat, so I lo- shed a lot of kilograms. Really? <laughs> wow. Well, because I don't have time, I have to do all these interviews. I don't know if anyone has noticed, but I've been on every possible TV and radio station since <laughs> 7 o'clock in the morning. God bless you. <laughs>
0: What do you love to eat when, when you do finish a day? Do you, do you cook from
2: um, uh, the latest book, from Simple? Is no. That? Well, I sometimes do, actually. I, work, I cook from Simple more like on the weekend, but I love to cook the food that Carl makes. My husband, he, is a, he makes really good uh, traditional food that the kids He's love. He's Northern Irish. He's Northern Irish, yeah, and Carl makes like the best cottage pie or lasagna or the, all the stuff that... Because my kids really deep down inside, they don't want to eat what I cook. Uh, so we've we, got
0: Max is six. Max
2: is six and Flynn is three. Yeah. And, you know, they're not so much into sumac and butternut squash here. <laughs> and they're much more into the stuff that Carl makes, which is fair enough. I think I would probably be the same. And, and, and uh, that that's, I really love because, you know, kids never finish their food. So there's always stuff to scrape off the plate. So that is essentially my dinner. I mean, Oh yeah. God. <laughs> Because I'm, I'm not hungry. I'm not hungry because I have eaten all day long. But yeah. it is. I don't think there is. Needs, we need to discuss my diet too much because it is really not very. You know, I eat mostly just to try food and either at work or at, resta- at the restaurant.
0: So, what do? You, have your kids actually tried your food? Like, is there oh, something yeah, yeah. that you you've made that is a, a family favorite?
2: Yeah, so one thing that I do quite religiously, also Helen told me to do that. Helen features a lot today, not just because we're in Melbourne. She makes crepes for her kids and freezes them, and then she warms them up in the morning. And Helen told me on our previous book tour to do this. So on Sunday nights, often I make like a pile of crepes and put them in the freezer, and then we warm them up in the morning, and then we serve them to to them in the morning. And they also like, one thing that they really like that sounds not too kitty friendly, but they do like um, majadra, which is an Arabic dish made of rice and lentils and fried onion. I published recipes, many recipes of that kind of nature, and they do love that. So whenever they want, whenever I'm cooking, they say, could you make rice and lentils? And that's kind of my thing that I get them to eat, and they do love that.
0: Beautiful. And your own growing up, I love your family nickname. Because I have a funny family nickname too.
2: What was yours?
0: Mine was Padja, and I, and what was yours?
2: Golozzo. That's Italian for greedy, I think.
0: I think we both come from the same background in a lot of ways. But how? Why were you given that name? What? What were you? Well, eating? I just
2: really love to eat, and I remember. Um, I, I, I remember. I actually don't remember because my parents tell me. That I really had that kind of a, a very obsessive relationship with food quite at an early stage. So I wanted to eat particular things, and I don't know. Many I think many chefs would recognize this. That essentially what drives you to that profession is, is like is the greed we were talking about, just kind of an immense love of food. Mm. Um, so for a birthday for a birthday, I would be asking to go to a particular restaurant, uh, even when I was, like, seven. It's quite embarrassing, but, you know, I just... So a grown-up restaurant. A grown-up restaurant, yeah. 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 There was one place in Jerusalem uh, in the 1970s, there was a restaurant that was serving prawns, shrimps, and it was the only restaurant in Jerusalem that was serving shrimps. It was actually in East Jerusalem, because Jewish restaurants wouldn't... Serve shrimps. Mm -hmm. So they would take me there and there used to be these shrimps that were just with some butter and garlic and oil and lemon juice, you know, something quite simple. But I used to dream about those prawns. I was like, oh, (laughs) so good. (laughs) Well, you
0: have many great prawn recipes as a result. I do, yeah. So so that echoes through, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, I do love prawns. And uh, and. It was, it was funny, Jerusalem of the, in the 1970s and 80s was a really funny place and actually also a naively great place because it was before the first uh, Intifada which happened in the 1980s. So the relationships between Palestinians and Jews were much more kind of normalised or pre-normalised than they were... Uh, There was a sense of uh, there was a naive attitude where people still thought they could get along. So we would go to East Jerusalem, we'd go to Jericho, to Bethlehem, to Ramallah, and have like these amazing food. And it was on the one hand it was foreign because we couldn't get that food in West Jerusalem when I was growing up. But on the other hand, it was really familiar because that's what we had when we would go out and have all this fantastic Palestinian food. One thing I remember was Jericho. Is really low, it's under sea level, and Jerusalem is quite high here. So we used to go, and um, my, my brother and my dad and I would go on our bikes, and you only needed just to go downhill. It was just a completely, there was no sports involved, but we still got on our bikes and went downhill from Jerusalem to Jericho and had the most incredible food um, over there. You know, these kind of platters of delicious salads with, you know, with. Egg, eggplants and, and tahini and chickpeas and uh, grilled meats, and it was really wonderful. And then my mum would come and pick us up in the car, so we'd load our bike back <laughs> up the hill in the bike. And what go, a perfect <laughs> day! <laughs> yeah, yeah it, was, it was wonderful.
0: So, those uh, the, uh, growing up with a sense of za'atar, lots of herbs, and, and having access to this beautiful Middle Eastern cuisine has really informed your life, hasn't it?
2: Yes. It has. I mean, I think it was, it's very, uh, Jerusalem is, was also very special in the sense that all the Jewish communities that settled in Jerusalem have had really incredibly interesting cuisines, each one with its own, a bit like Melbourne, you know, each community has had its own uh, culture and they haven't quite assimilated at that stage. Yes, They're yeah. still not completely assimilated, but you would have like, so one of the most interesting cuisines is Kurdish cuisine, Jews from Kurdistan which is, you know, b- b- Iran, Iraq, and Turkey, would bring really interesting kibbeh, you know, stuffed b- b- Bulgar cakes, oh. but m- cooked in a soup rather than fried, the Syrian variety that most people here would know. And that was just, like, incredible. We used to go to the market on a Friday and all these beautiful soups, um, and then you had you would have, like, um, Jews from Central Asia, from Azerbaijan, or those Buhari Jews would cook beautiful pilafs and so it was a really rich food culture and you could kind of pick and choose what you wanted to have. It, it, it really is not too dissimilar to what goes on here now but this was you know 30 years ago.
0: Your parents, uh, mum was a, a maths teacher or a school principal, dad's a chemistry professor, you went to university. Was there always an expectation that you would do something academic from, from your family? Yeah.
2: As my sister says, it's, used to say, it's an unstated expectation, or quiet expectation. I don't think anyone ever said to me that I have to go to university, but I don't think I ever questioned that I have to go to yeah. university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I did, and I kind of enjoyed it, but I, it wasn't really my passion. I mean, I studied to finished my degree and I, um, when I graduated in 1997, I thought that I could either stay there, but it felt quite isolated. You know, academic world, for me, felt very isolated. Uh, lots of time in libraries and against the computer screen and and not very, you know, no reaction. And I remember one of the first experiences that I've had is working in a restaurant. I used to work in the evenings, really, without pay, just when I was studying. And I was working in the pastry section, and the pastry cook one time told me, um, you know, make something, you know, for the staff, and I made this brownie, it was just brownies swirled together with a blondie, you know, it's very 1990s, (laughs) and uh, I I sent it to them, and they were saying, oh my god, this is so delicious, you're so good, and that reaction I haven't had in years of, you know, being at university, and all of a sudden you just cook one thing, and you get this incredible reaction, so I think that uh, sense of appreciation is something that Really appealed to me and and made me kind of stick even when it mm. wasn't always easy.
0: In a family sense, did you have to move from Jerusalem and from Israel to be able to sort of get your next start?
2: Um, I, not. I mean, I left. I, I left Jeru- uh, Tel Aviv to move to Amsterdam, and I mm. lived there for a few years, and then I moved to London in ninety seven. But I think it was, it was good because I could get a good education at a French culinary school, learn mm. the terms, learn the cuts, learn how to kind of do a few basic things in the kitchen and then, and then move on. That was a good thing. And uh, I don't know it was necessarily, necessarily for me to move away, but it was definitely a good place to be, London in, you know, in the late 90s, because there's a lot of really interesting restaurants happening. I could learn a lot. And, and I loved it.
0: Yeah. In 2002, you opened your first deli. And that sounds like you sort of painted the town with great colours, mounds and beautiful vegetables and, you know, all your cleverness. But, but that moment must have been really exciting. Um,
2: yeah, it was very exciting because uh, when we opened our deli in Notting Hill in 2002, um, we... I, team together with Noam Barr, who's one of my business partners, and Sami Tamimi, who's another one. And uh, we, s- essentially, I, I, it was really bold and crazy when you think about it, because we just took some money from our family. We didn't have any money. And uh, everybody just said, okay, we know these are nice guys, we'll give it to them, but we'll never see any return on this investment, but that's what you do to f- your family. And we set up this deli, and I remember Sammy ordered the first... Um, Uh, put in the order from our suppliers for our first delivery of vegetables. And they arrived in the morning and there was like three crates of eggplants and four crates of cucumbers. They said, Sammy, you're crazy. Who's gonna buy all this food? (laughs) And uh, and, and so we set it all up and there was lots of food, you know, a little bit like what we do now, but a bit smaller. Hmm. And people just came and I was just astonished. You know, you're like someone, you know, you're 30 year old. You have no idea, you have no experience in food or retail. We it's just a brazen thing to do, but, but people did love it and they reacted. And I remember one Saturday, like two weeks after we opened, people, there was a queue outside the door and I thought, this is not happening, this is just impossible. And that's, that, that was very magical, yeah.
0: So was that the moment that you felt, I'm in the right place, I'm, I'm, I'm good and I'm, this is where I want to go?
2: I never really feel like that. Really? No, I mean, I think it's, it's kind of... I, I always have a good anxiety. Like, everything, anything can go wrong any day for me. I
0: love that. <laughs> and that's probably part of your DNA as well, is it?
2: Completely. Like Even like when we were doing pretty well, I remember walking, I, walking up to the restaurant, where the first restaurant that we opened after we opened Notting Hill was in Islington, hmm. in North London. I remember going out, I just refused to go out to the restaurant because just the idea of seeing empty seats in a restaurant just makes you sick. (laughs) You know, you pay your wait staff, you pay your chefs, and you go up and there's nobody sitting in the restaurant. Anyone who owns a restaurant knows that feeling. Mm -hmm. It's just awful. And even when you're successful... It, you can still easily lose man, money. You know, the margins are very low and, and it takes a while to kind of get to this state... You must
0: be feeling pretty okay by now, though.
2: Yeah, but we didn't talk about Brexit, didn't we? Did we? No, no, we're not going to talk about Brexit. We're not going to talk about...
0: But one of the things I discovered reading up on you was that you actually you qualified as a Pilates instructor just in case... For a rainy, for a rainy day, yeah. <laughs> What other skills do you have? Are there other careers? No, that, that's the only one,
2: <laughs> that's the only one. <laughs> I got my degree from university and I can teach Pilates. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh...
0: You don't need to.
2: No, I mean, in actual fact now, really, I don't really suffer from that, that kind of anxiety. But I think in the world of food, it really is, the f- you, you can never really rest on your laurels. I mean, there's... Trends change, people come and go. And I think this is one of the things we were talking about, the collaborations that mm-hmm. I've had with different people. Um, Scully, for instance, whom I was with here, not here, but in America a couple of years ago and collaborated with me on the Nopi Cookbook. You know, all these people, they really have this kind of <clears throat> breadth of knowledge that I, I, I feel that if I'm going to grow my business, if I'm going to grow the Otolengi brand, you need that. So I, I just think it needs... You, I have to keep on nurturing it. I have to keep on uh, reinventing the books and the restaurants. Otherwise, who knows?
0: Have you actually thought about what it is that makes us love you so much?
2: Apart from the barbecue.
0: Yeah, apart from the, the barbecue. But, but that sort of, is it the, the right person, the right idea, the right time? Because your books are in all our homes, several, and, uh, and around the world. What, what is it? Yeah. Have, you, have you thought about what?
2: I think it's a combination of many factors. Mm. So, I mean, one of them would, have, would be that kind of... I think when I published Plenty, which is almost 10 years ago, there was a real uh, n- urge to, for pe- various people, not only vegetarians but a lot of vegetarians, to really kind of focus on vegetables. You know, all of a sudden, pe- the, re- the world realised that we need to eat more vegetables for all sorts of reasons. Mm. And... With plenty, I just pull out all my stops when it comes to vegetables, you know? I thought, like, let's just do whatever we can. I mean, vegetables need some help, and... um And it's because it's not like as straightforward as some, you know, as a good piece of meat that you can just grill and it Mm -hmm. just does its own thing. It's it needs a little bit more help. And I remember when I was working on plenty, I was just trying really hard how to kind of bring the best out of every vegetable I can. It sounds like a humanitarian cause, but (laughs) uh, but it, it really is something. You know, it's something that I felt really strongly about and. And I think doing two two things with vegetables, make them taste good and look good, Mm. is what I managed to achieve um, and still do. And and it's not a straightforward thing. So we were talking earlier about Middle Eastern food. So Mm. that's the other aspect, you know, the Middle Eastern ingredients. But Middle Eastern food, Lebanese, Palestinian, Syrian, Israeli, doesn't necessarily look so good. There's a lot of brown things. And, um, (laughs) and, and delicious. But delicious, like, yeah. yeah. But, you know, you need to sell it from all sorts of angles. Mm. And I think what, one of the things that Sammy and I do pretty well is make things look really sexy and good and modern. So if you, if you make something like a hummus, it's grey and it's not... But if you make, like, an interesting salsa and a pickle that goes on top and a couple of other toppings, it, it, first of all, it heightens it in a certain way, but it also makes it kind of modern. It makes it feel off the time. And, I mean... In in London, in England, Claudia Roden wrote the book of Middle Eastern, cook, cook, uh, uh, Middle Eastern food when I, the year that I was born, mm. 1968. So and everybody read that book. So it, it's not like I discovered or, or revealed anything that the world or at least in, in in England didn't know. And here you have all these Lebanese. You know, a mass- massive Lebanese com- community mm. cooking the same food, but I think it maybe just needed a bit of modernizing mm. or bringing up to date in a, in a, in a certain way, and um, maybe that's that's what I did.
0: And uh, do you think you'll move beyond that sort of Mediterranean Middle East and look perhaps to the Americas, South America, well, Africa, I Australia? Have. I have.
2: I mean, I have over the years. I mean, mm. I, I've published so many recipes I can't even remember all of them. But um, I've used a lot of Asian ingredients. I, for, I, I often see the way I've kind of expanded my repertoire or my uh, inventory of ingredients as kind of a, a growing in a concentric way. So from Jerusalem in the heart of the Middle East to North Africa, to Southern Europe, mm, mm. to Persia, Iraq, I- and India and Southeast Asia. And every move for me has its own logic because in a sense, these are kind of similar cuisines in many ways. Like you, so many of these cultures make, you know, chili pastes, like a harissa and a sambal, and all these things. They're really kind of similar, and you find it in Mexico as well. Wherever the sun shines, you kind of have similar things: cumin and garlic and citrus. Mm-hmm. And and so I feel very uh, free to kind of borrow things as long as they work, because I think there is a lot of affinities between. Cuisines, but it, it's just, you just, I just want to do it carefully because it's very easy to do it for the sake of it, and, and I try not to. I just try to do it when I feel it's relevant and, and good.
0: You've done it very cleverly, though, and I think probably at your own personal expense. And I, I love uh, reading that you and Carl were in Thailand at a beach resort, and like, nah. I've got to get to the street market, I've got to eat some street food. I've got to go
2: and find my elusive oyster omelette.
0: Exactly. So do you... I spent
2: one whole day looking for an oyster omelette and I couldn't find it. And when I did find it, the restaurant was closed. Oh, my God. (laughs) Because they don't open on Monday.
0: (laughs) But do you ever switch off? Is, Is your life a continual search for... Uh, uh, enjoyable, but also there's a mental thing of like I'll take a note of that that this could be.
2: Um, yeah, I mean I do now I do it less than I used to do. Again, like I described, there's a big team and people come yeah, up with sure. ideas. So most things come up in conversation rather than I come back. I mean I do take notes when I when I come back from a from a, um, a, re- a restaurant or a tour or whatever. Mm. But I think more of, more of stuff, the ideas come up in conversations and uh, and things that I see online or on my phone.
0: And who are you inspired by? As we are inspired by you, who, who do you look to that, that you find inspiring in a, in a food sense?
2: Um, I think mostly the people that I mentioned, my colleagues. Your colleagues, yeah. And, uh, and I do often go and find things really interesting. On I mean, the things that I did, and you do when you do your TV shows, I find very useful. Like, I've, people always say, oh, wait, how do you choose where you want to travel? And I always say, I want to travel where I w- I'm going to learn the most, mm. it's a very selfish exercise, you know, I want to go to places where I'm going to learn it. When I came back from Tunisia, I had like six Guardian columns all done and dusted because I just learned so many new things. And I do have to publish three new recipes every week. It's, it's hard work. So I, I do try to travel to places where I find interesting food and where I'm going to learn new things. Where are you
0: going this year?
2: Um, I don't... I mean, after Australia, I, I'm not quite sure. I, I, I know I'm going to... I'm very likely to go to Bali. I've never been to Bali. I know for you it's like next door, but uh, for, for someone who's never been to Bali, I'm quite excited about that. I don't know food-wise, but, um, but I, I still have to travel to Mexico. I haven't really travelled in Mexico, Oh, my gosh. So, so there
0: are wonders awaiting yeah. you, and, and isn't that exciting? That Absolutely. there are whole worlds that you can immerse yourself and eat... We've um, been lucky enough to have Greg Malouf as a a friend and seeing him in a restaurant taste something and you almost see the cogs turning like, ah, but even if I, you know, tweak this, did this, are you always tasting? Are you always on?
2: Yeah, I used to be a little bit more like that than I do now because it actually spoils sometimes. It spoils the experience where you're constantly on. Also, people who are in the restaurant industry will tell you that, it's very counterproductive to have your kind of hospitality antennae when you go out because it's just really... You know, fun. Yeah, it's no fun, especially I really don't like eating in my own restaurants. Because then I can just—it doesn't apply to you. You can still come, but, um, but for me, it's just a total nightmare because all I see is everything that goes wrong. from... Oh no! Yeah, because that's what you do. You know, you sit there and something isn't quite right, and the service is not like as I want it to be, etc. So, it's it's quite difficult. And this is something someone asked me, I think, today about turning your hobby into your profession. Mm. And that's the price sometimes you have to pay that w- when you turn your passion into your source of income and uh, it's, you do lose a little bit of something because you have to worry about things that you maybe you, ne- you never had to worry before. You just had to enjoy the next meal. Indeed. You know? yeah. Are
0: you enjoying the whirlwind of celebrity? Oh, no
2: no, uh, yes, I guess. I mean, I I I had a, like an incredible thing today when I arrived here there was like a queue of like 200 people and it doesn't really happen to me all the time. So I, me that celebrity is not something that I experience, you know, every day. It only happens it's when I come in when I come to Melbourne or Sydney. Aww. So uh, <laughs> so I it, it keeps me in the right place and also my my um, my husband Carl always makes sure that I'm very grounded when I land back he, he used to do this thing, he can't do it anymore because our children are out of their nappies, but he used to hand me our little child and said, go change him before you do anything okay. else. Okay, yeah, come back may, to yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Very nice. On the kids, you, you are thinking of the power of the word no. That the world wants you, there are opportunities there, but your home life is very precious to you, isn't it?
2: Yeah, Yeah, I mean, we had our children quite late in life and I... When we had our boys, which Max is six now, so not that long ago, I've just decided that I'm not going to spend my time you know, being away. I mean, this is unusual because I, I, I travel maybe two, one, one or two months of the year, but the wow. rest of the time I stay at home. And it's very important for me to keep that. And uh, so this is why I haven't done more television, because I thought like, I, I can't... Because every one of... These travel, you, know, you, do, you know how long it takes to produce an episode and if you need to travel, that's extra time. So every one of the episodes that I did took me away from home for 10 days. Mm. That's a lot of time to be away.
0: It is, but magic for us, you know, we can watch again and again, you know, you traveling through those beautiful Mediterranean islands. Oh, and,
2: I had the best and tapping time. tapping
0: into those food cultures. I had huh? a oh
2: wonderful time. I have to say these are some of the most wonderful experiences. I have ever had. And I discovered places that I've had no idea. I mean, I've never been to Corsica, and it's such an interesting cultural phenomenon in terms of like, like it's like the Alps in the middle of the Mediterranean, both in terms of the landscape and the attitude. Oh. You know, it's like this kind of cultural phenomenon. And, and you travel and you just discover these fantastic things or Tunisia, which is kind of in between France and and Africa, and Mm. really, uh, for for me, it's a lot about the food, but I'm really, really fascinated by the culture and the political and historical context of these stories.
0: And you connect most beautifully with those people. I mean, the Sardinian shepherds, and you've roasted the lamb against the fire, (laughs) and then you roast the figs, and they've never had the figs with the lamb before with rocket. And that wonderful moment where they do genuinely love what you've done and taken their food just a little bit further.
2: Yeah. You know, these are great interactions. I, I find travel is just incredible. And even if it's in front of a camera and obviously things are slightly staged, I mean, those moments are very genuine. I mean, I've, I've never... You can't really fake it. No, you can't fake it. And also because people are not camera experience. You know, when you go to a place, they don't really know (laughs) to behave any different. And I I remember when I did this scene in Morocco when I was cooking couscous with these Berber women and the director, James, just said to me, this is your village, go and find your kitchen. And he followed me with a camera and I had to knock on doors in the middle of the Atlas mountain finding the ladies that I'm gonna make couscous with. And I knocked on a, many wrong doors until I got to the right one, and they looked at <laughs> this weird, no? weird Western man looking, knocking on their doors. I, we didn't have a common language. And then when I arrived, and we started doing the couscous, and they were, it was really—it's very evocative, you know. The mm. steam comes off the pot of beautiful vegetable stock, and it's all really wonderful. And then all of a sudden, she just starts laughing, like laughing. I don't even know why she's laughing, but we're rolling this couscous and she's laughing and laughing and laughing. And then I asked, there was a translator there, why is she laughing? She says, she's never seen a man roll couscous in her life. (laughs) 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 What joy. (laughs) What absolute
0: joy. Tell me, do you think food, like food is now beyond what it was when we were children? It is, oh, yeah. It's bigger, it's, ex- it's a hobby, it's something that we love, we talk about, we travel for. Do you think that's always going to be in our lives? Has food now sort of become greater than, than it started?
2: It's a really, really good question, and I don't know the answer. Someone said to me once, like, uh, chefs are now the, like, the new celebrities, but in the 80s it used to be hairdressers like Vidal Sassoon, and they're <laughs> not celebrities anymore, so maybe it's going to happen to chefs as well and um, this might happen, I don't know, but um, I think we're in a kind of weird moment because everything is very public and open and everything is happening and I I don't really know how it's going to land, uh, but... uh, I see it sometimes as a good thing and sometimes it's a bad thing. So the good thing is that there is this conversation around food, which is really international and crosses mm. borders. Like I noticed like you, when, if you're on, on Instagram, you see things just like, there's like a wildfires, you know, all of a sudden everybody roasts Brussels sprouts from Brooklyn to <laughs> Moscow, you know, like everybody on every menu, there's like these roasted by Brussels sprouts with hoisin sauce. And then, and then you go, and then so that's a that's a nice thing, isn't it? That's a good thing. But then it just also turns people into. There's something very competitive about it, and very shallow. And Mm. you ask yourself, like, what are the consequences of this thing? And I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I think nobody knows at this stage. It's obviously, it's obvious that food is very popular, but yeah.
0: And then there's there's those traditions, the nonas, the yayas, who. Are real and true, and you hope that some of that will always continue, despite putting Brussels sprouts with hoisin sauce. <laughs> you know that that the simplicity, the the truth, the 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 real food will always be there. I think
2: so, but also I think we need to realise that this is just a kind of a world that is slipping away. I mean, there's the these kind of authentic things are are far mm. in, uh, in between, and I think it's probably. We are kind of entering a new era in terms of food, and it's very international, and we eat way less uh, unprocessed food than we used to do. So, I, I'm not quite. Quite sure where it's going. I mean, it's okay now, so I think I was Should we should stay and enjoy it? But I'm not sure, yeah
0: So, so the 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 essence of food is joy. Like there's sustainability. There there are things that we need to be aware of. But the essence of food for you, could you? Yeah. Well, because
2: some, I, I said that because I think some one of the issues that I find sometimes um, that bother me is that uh, I, I see it in the UK. I'm not that well versed in the Australian, uh, you know, conversation. But sometimes I get annoyed by this kind of... I, I do think that we should eat sustainably and I think we should, the politics of food should be right and it's very important. But sometimes I feel that people forget that food is really... It's a, it's a, it is supposed to be giving joy. Uh, it's a very uh, physical experience. And this should be the starting point of every conversation. Is, is, is this delicious? Mm. And then we can have other conversations which are equally important, but, uh, but just don't lose the touch of the f- with the food and don't uh, that's i don 't know exactly i can 't give you a great example of how this happens, but often it does happen. I go like, "Hey, wait a second, you forgot that this needs to be really good before you kind of move on to uh, to other questions and I think eat you know less I, uh, also the other thing that I get a little bit wound out wind up over is is where when, when, you ha- when you feel that um, the conversation... People think that they need to cook so many types of things. And I think it's better to kind of narrow it a little bit and cook less uh, variety, but, more, but better. So, mm. for instance, sorry, I'm not, I'm not very clear about it, but I know a lot, I know a lot of people that hate this kind of the sense of repetition. And uh, and they and they want uh, they want to cook something different every day. And I come, obviously I benefit from that because that's why you buy my books. But uh, <laughs> but there, but there's also this idea that every time you re- need to reinvent yourself in, in a, as a cook, mm. and that is really anxiety-inducing, isn't it? I mean, when you have to have, learn about a whole new cuisine for your next dinner party and I always appreciate people that maybe would cook the same thing every time but they do it really well. Really well. yeah. Really well. yeah.
0: Summer in Australia simple what would be a recipe or two that you'd point us to to sparkle up our barbecues?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well for the barbie I would say no, <laughs> I don't know how to do it with an Australian, I need to work on my Australian accent but oh uh, so there is this, this i don 't know have we talked about the cauliflower salad? no we, we behind haven't. stage did we yeah, before yeah. so there's a cauliflower st- salad which includes both uh, fresh cauliflower and uh, roasted cauliflower and it 's got pomegranate seeds and pistachios and lemon juice and tons of herbs and for me that's, this is kind of perfect because it 's a kind of a celebration of the vegetable uh, and shows it in the diff- F- from different lights and I love to do that and that's like plenty more was all about different ways of cooking the same vegetables and getting very different results. So this is the one that I love. Um, other recipes in the book, I mean, it's, it's kind of endless. The, 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 what I like about it is that this book really does do the thing that I talk about quite a lot on this book tour that people have different ways to cook mm. and people bring them a different cook in, enters the kitchen with every different person. So when, when we try to crack what simple cooking actually means, uh, we, we, we talked to different people and some, and some said, you know, for me, it's all about, I, I want to finish in half an hour. I want to have a meal. My time is is precious. Mm. And other people would say, well, it's, it's just, I don't like shopping. You know, I don't like going and looking for your obscure ingredients. I just want to have something that I can cook for my pantry or I want to cook, or I want to make a head and then serve when people are ready. So that kind of made those different categories of simple cooking as, as the structure for the book. Um, but, but kind of the, the bottom line of this thing is that, I, we, is that I want to kind of recognize that people have different ways of cooking. So um, another example of a recipe that I really love in the book is from the dessert section, is a custard because many people think that a custard is a big deal, but this custard is like five ingredients, and you mix them, whisk them together, put it in the oven, and within 40 minutes, you have the most beautiful set custard, and I serve it with, like, roasted rhubarbs and strawberries. Mm. I don't know if it's in season here, those are in season here now, because I don't know about Australian Definitely season. Definitely strawberry season, uh, so, but, yeah. And it's just such a wonderful thing, and so simple to make. And, and again, like, it's all about the confidence of kind of making something that... You know that is is simple.
0: I want to thank you, Yota Motelengi, for the joy, the confidence that you've given many of us here in the in this room who've loved you, cooked you from your books, and thank you for sharing your thank stories, you. your life, and uh, for visiting us today. Thank you, everybody. Yota you. Yeah, yeah. Well done you. you here. <laughs> You've been listening to Yotem Montaleni in conversation with Maevo Mira your TAM's amazing new book simple is available from all readings stores you can stream previous episodes of the readings podcast on our website readings.com.au where you'll also find news reviews and interviews and information on our current book music and dvd releases you can even sign up to our newsletter the readings monthly this podcast was recorded live at the melbourne town hall